so much. If you can't hear me in the back, why, uh, please raise your hand and let me know. My name is Betty, and I'm a grateful alcoholic. I want to start off by thanking Lois and Jeff and Dee Dee, our hosts, and they've been so wonderful to us. Also, the flowers, the beautiful fruit basket, the corsages, all the countless things you've done for us in the mugs. It's all been a wonderful, wonderful time, and uh, I, I appreciate it. I, through the grace of God, the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous and the loving concern of you people in this fellowship, I've been sober since March the 13th of 1979. For that, my husband and I are truly grateful. (laughs) I think of March the 13th, 79, as the day I started to become recycled, because that's what happened to me. Uh, It happened to be the anniversary, the first meeting of... Alcoholics Anonymous in our little town of Nakona, Texas, 3,000 people, and uh, through different circumstances, I'm the only one who celebrates that anniversary as my birthday also, and there's a reason for that, which I'll tell you later. Uh, my, I qualified as an Al-Anon before I came in, and I could have qualified as an Alateen had I known about such a program. And now that I'm in AA, I think of myself as a triple winner in my own family group. You know, I can have, <laughs> I can have a call meeting whenever I want to, uh, but it would be pretty dull. Now, I want to say this about Al-Anon. It is extremely helpful to me. I get a lot out of Al-Anon. And, of course, AA has to be my primary uh, program because that is a matter of life and death, as we all know. But I get a lot from Al-Anon, and I hasten to say anyone who does not really appreciate Al-Anon is simply not aware of its blessings, and I know that. And having said that, though, I want to share with you this joke that an Al-Anon that I know likes me to tell. I won't mention his name, but anyway, this is a joke. Uh, maybe you've already heard it, but anyway, he said, do you know why Alanines always close their eyes when they make love? And I said, well, no, why would they always close their eyes when they make love? And he said, it's because they can't stand to see an alcoholic having a good time. I'm going to check it out. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> anyway, I was the sort of person like many of you. I was um, never very friendly with myself. I was always so vulnerable. I was insecure. I can blame this on nothing because I had a very happy family life. And no, nothing traumatic happened to me as I was growing up as a child. I have no alibis, no excuses. But... Um, I, I like a lot of you. I was never, I never felt very comfortable around other people. So, I one time read a quote by E.E. E. Cummins, and as young as I was, I knew exactly what he was talking about when he said, "Everywhere I go, 
I go too, and that spoils everything. <laughs> and that was the way I felt. And you know when Groucho Marx said, wouldn't dream of joining a country club that would have me as a member. I could understand that too. Well, I don't want to stand up here and have you think that I was an alcoholic for 20 years and finally came into the program. I drank many years before I was an alcoholic. My husband and I were drinking partners. We had a lot of fun uh, for a lot of years drinking and partying and so on. Well, the day came when I did cross over the line. But um, anyway, as I was growing up, I had a lot of honors that came to me. But no matter what happened to me, my self-esteem never varied. It never, nothing ever made me feel better about myself. And I could blame that on nothing except maybe my genes. I don't know what. But I want to tell you this. It's a very important uh, point to bring out, I think, in my story. Uh, as I got older, I went into a work of love and service for one year. And during that year, I decided not to drink. I was very active in this work of love and service. And I decided on my own, my own not to drink. I didn't mention it to anyone else, and I had no trouble staying with it. And during that year, it was a miraculous time in my life. I had such a time of peace. Uh, uh, maybe you've heard of the book, In Tune with the Infinite, or uh, it's the same as being in harmony with the universe. And I really lived that year in that wonderful wonderful frame of mind, the spirit of God consciousness, and so on. Well, I lost it, and I have to this day yet to recover it to that degree, but I was going to press on and hope to recover it completely. Bob and I were dating. He was stationed at an air base in Clovis, New Mexico, where my parents lived, and we, we started to date. And uh, we, I wanted to meet his parents before we uh, married, of course. And so we flew to Akron, Ohio, and his parents uh, met us at the plane. And they were wonderful to me from the very beginning. My parents had read a lot of the same books, and I had read a lot of the same books that they read. We had a lot to talk about. We, we just hit it off. And uh, very shortly had a love affair with each other. I loved those people dearly, and, and they treated me as a beloved daughter. To have known them will be a blessing all my life, truly. Well, they started talking this very day about a meeting they were going to that night at King's School. I had no idea. This was in the early 40s, and I had no idea what they had reference to, so the first time I had an opportunity, I went to Bob, and I said, what are they talking about, a meeting at King's School? And he said, oh, it's a, an organization that my father helped co-found. So I didn't know any more than when I asked the question. So I went that night to this meeting at King's School. Now, King's School is a, an historical place. But, you know, when you're in the midst of history, you don't know it at the time. And uh, so I, I didn't know it. But, uh, and I had never heard the words Alcoholics Anonymous in my life in New Mexico. Well, as I sat down there, a dentist from Cleveland got up to talk, and it was one of the most dramatic moments of my lifetime ever because he is standing up there talking about 
a solution, a, sobri- a life of sobriety, a happy life of sobriety. Well, you see, my father at this time had turned into an alcoholic. And my mother and I, having no idea how to cope with it, simply threw the booze away every time we found a bottle, not knowing any better. Well, I didn't know there was a solution. And here is a living example of the solution right in front of me. I was so thrilled and elated, I could hardly stay still. And as soon as the meeting was over, I rushed up to Dr. Bob and I said, oh, you must be so proud to have co-founded a fantastic fellowship like this. And boy, had I ever said the wrong thing. He said, oh, no, I have just been used as an instrument. I'm just an agent. And he didn't want that put upon him. And, of course, all their lives, people put Dr. Bob and Bill on a pedestal. And uh, they were wonderful people, but they were human beings. Anyway, he, he did not want that. And uh, we were fortunate enough that Bob, every, when he got out of the Air Force, everybody seemed like in the world got out of the Second World War at the same time, and it was very hard to find jobs, and none of them paid much of anything. But we found a, a home in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, a suburb, Bay Village. And so we were very close to his parents in Akron, and I, that was a wonderful blessing, too, because I got to be around them, and their friends, anytime they asked mom and dad to dinner, they would ask us to dinner, and I got to know those first women in AA, and a lot of the, the first men whose uh, uh, stories are in the big book, and it was a wonderful, exciting thing, and I loved those people. They were so full of humor. We knew people in AA had a lot of fun. They, uh, we were very young and dumb, and one day, well, we had no money, and Dr. Bob and Anna had very little. But one day, Dr. Bob showed up with his couch that he had bought at, uh, at an auction. It was very beautiful. It was in, covered in silk, burgundy and gold, and it was just, just stunning. And Bob and I, as I say, we were young and dumb, and we'd always wanted some sectional furniture. So Bob got out the saw, and he sawed it in two. Well, that meant that he had to build some more legs for it, you know. And it also meant that I had to cover it because the ragged silk was just hanging there. And so Bob said I bought some material that looked kind of like mattress uh, ticking. But actually it looked to me more like awning material. (laughs) Big blue stripes, you know, about this wide. And we put that on it. And uh, to my amazement to this day, neither mom nor dad ever said a word about that. You know, that is really restraint. I'd have killed my kids. I really would have killed my kids if they had done something like that. Anyway, we had so much fun. And uh, they were full of humor and laughter and sharing. And we played bridge and... Dad and I would play gin rummy and, and yell at each other at these lousy discharges we got. And we just had a lot of fun. And, uh, oh, I couldn't tell you all the wonderful things they did. But this was a time when I got to see Mom with these women that she worked with. And they would come to the house. She was on the phone all the time. And she nurtured these people. She just attracted them just like a magnet. And... I saw her pray with those women. 
And she could see the need for the spouses. And she fulfilled that need in every way that she could. She was fantastic. She really, I, I've never known a person as much like a saint as she was. I heard so patient. So I saw her one day. She had a little crease, a little worry frown in here. Only time I ever saw it. And I, she walked upstairs. And she came back down in about 10 or 15 minutes, and I looked at her face, and I knew just as if she had told me she had been up there having a quiet time. And her face was so serene, I knew exactly what she had been doing. And, of course, uh, Dad was a wonderful person, too, and he, he had a great sense of humor. And he was a very profound person, too, and very seeking spiritually, read a couple of hours every night. He had insomnia, so he did that. Well, anyway, I would never dream of telling his parents that, that my father had just developed a drinking problem. Uh, I wouldn't have thought of doing that, and I didn't tell Bob, but he didn't know. So I made up my mind I was going to go home with a big book for sure. So when we left there, why, I rushed up to my mother at the house and I said, Mother, we have the answer. We can help Dad. And we ran excitedly to tell my father this fantastic news. And guess what? (laughs) He was not nearly as enthusiastic as we were. But it was not too long until he was ready for help. I know one day Mother called me. He had gotten fired from his job, and he did what I thought was a very darn good thing to do if you're going to drink on the job. He got his own business started. So, you know, he could handle it how he wanted to. He had a gift shop. He had Indian jewelry and blankets and a bunch of little junk and trinkets and so on. Anyway, it was a nice little gift shop. And she called me one day and she said, Honey, I think you better go down to your dad's shop because I think he's in terrible shape. So I went down there and there was, there were two Air Force officers in there at the time. And they neither knew nor cared that I was related to this man. But one of them looked at the other one. My father was as in as bad a shape as I had ever seen him, the worst. And he was barely able to stand. And one of the men looked at the other and said, isn't that just repugnant? Isn't that just repulsive to see one, someone in that shape? And they talked about that. And, of course, it hurt me. But I wanted so badly to say, I see what you see, and I understand what you think. But if you knew the inside of this man that I knew, you wouldn't feel quite that way. Because, see, for all these years, my father had been sober. He had a great sense of humor. He had spiritual depth. And he had so many great things going for him that when he did become an alcoholic, I think I do not have the scars that an alcoholic person normally has in that type of a family. Anyway, when I went home with that big book, it was not long before he was ready for help, and there were no treatment centers at that time, or if there were. We certainly had no ten or $20,000 for him to go to a treatment center. But uh, I heard about a place our family physician told me, and I drove him to Denver. And it turned out it was a sanitarium, but I don't know this. And so I left him overnight. and went back the next morning. I said, what kind of a night did you have? And he said, not too good. People running up and down the aisle screaming. Etc. And he said, Betty, they took my clothes and a razor, everything. Well, I got to talking around. I found out that I had inadvertently committed him to an insane asylum. <laughs> and I thought, he will never believe I did this 
accidentally. I didn't mean to. And so <laughs> it was 8 o'clock in the morning, and this is why I tell this story. I said, Dad, you get your things packed, and I'll take you out of this place. And he said, Betty, as early as it is, two AAs have already been to see me and talk to me, and I'm going to be all right, and I'm going to stay. And if they had not come that early, before 8 o'clock to talk to him, out of ignorance, I would have taken him on home. So, to make a long story short, he and another man started the first group in New Mexico. But those two men that came to visit him at 7.30 in the morning never knew how that 12th step turned out. And so many times we don't know how our 12th step turns out till later on. And to this day, I bless those two men because of what they meant in my life. And when my father passed away, some years later, people came up to me and said, he's alive today in the hearts of hundreds of people he'd counseled. He's counseled. And so, you know, it turned out to be a very happy story. Well, uh, it may have occurred to you by this time, knowing and loving Dr. Bob as she did, knowing and loving her father as she did, and having seen a little of AA, how did she come to be an AA? <laughs> it's a good question. The only answer I can give you is, for all we know, maybe one of Ben Franklin's kids got electrocuted flying a kite. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> but certainly that was how I ended up. Uh, Bob and I were drinking partners as I said before, and uh, alcohol entered our house a guest, and then over a period of time it became the host, and then it became the master. Well, I knew what the night, I found out what the night terrors were, and I found out what this doomsday feeling was in the middle of the night, knowing something terrible was going to happen, but I didn't know what it was. Well, um, when I met you people and heard you talk about impending doom and everything else, I knew exactly, I could identify exactly with what you were talking about. And, you know, we get, if you have an addiction, you get in a cocoon with nobody but your own self and your addiction. And it's like a web that's made out of steel cables that you can't fight yourself out of. It's... It starts out like a spider web and then ends up as a steel cable and, and you are helpless under it, even if you want to be out of it. Well, it's, it's total self-concern, total self-centeredness. At least it was in my case. You know, when you are shackled to the bottle or to any other addiction, you have no freedom. That is one of the things for which I'm most grateful in this program. The, the diction told me how to write my check, never to the liquor store, always at the bank or for more than I needed at the grocery store and so on. Uh, I was a closet drinker as much as it was possible to be. And um, it taught me how I, I withdrew. I had no freedom. I withdrew from society. I stayed in the closet. I had Skid Row on the living room couch, and I did, I don't, I've got one of the, the dullest stories I've ever heard, but that's what it was. I can't add to it. And 
I just I tried to keep it as quiet as I possibly could because as my kids, we have two sons and two daughters, and as my kids were growing up, I, I taught Sunday school. I did everything I thought a mother was supposed to do. Uh, the PTA business, the room mother for all three of my three PTAs to go to. <laughs> and I did all that stuff. Well, when I when my addiction got going good, one time we went to France, and Bob said we saved our money and finally made it. And uh, one day he said, "Let's buy a bottle of Pernod. And I said, "What's that?" And he said, well, "It's a liqueur." And I thought, okay, as long as it wasn't beer. I didn't care anything about beer. But anyway, he got this Pernod. He said it tastes sort of like licorice. And it looked like a bourbon, something like that. And we went up to our hotel room, and he set the bottle down on the table, and he went in the bathroom. And as soon as he did, I rushed over to the bottle, which was my custom, got the top off as fast as I possibly could, took about three slugs for whatever I thought I possibly had time for, then rushed over to the sink to fill it up with water, and as soon as I did, the water, as soon as the water hit it, it turned milky. Well, this was pretty bad because, you know, I was trying so hard to keep all this a secret, and I thought, my Lord, what am I going to tell him? This has never happened before. What will I say? And he walked out, and he looked at me, and he said, Betty, did you put water in there, in that pair of nose? And I looked him right in the eyeballs, and I said, why, no. <laughs> and uh, to this day, I have never thought of a better answer. <laughs> and I thought about it. But, okay, now this, I'm sure, is the beginning of his denial, because he didn't say any more about it, and I certainly wasn't going to bring it up. Well, <laughs> anyway, uh, when I realized that I had crossed over the line, that I was an alcoholic. I can't imagine really anybody coming in to, through those doors and surrendering without knowing they're an alcoholic for sure. I tell you, there was no doubt in my mind before I walked in. And I knew I couldn't go to AA, and I'll tell you why. In the first place, I lived in a town of 3,000 people. And I would have no anonymity. That scared me. I had moved to a town who had had a big split in the churches. They had built a public swimming pool, and what they had a real fight over was this issue of mixed bathing. I'd never heard of mixed bathing. But mixed bathing is when the men and the women go in the swimming pool at the same time. <laughs> I never forgot that, and I thought, my Lord, if they found out I was an alcoholic and a woman on top of that, there is no telling what they'd do to me. You could see how scared I was and why I was so scared. And, of course, I had pride. I was supposed to be a, a respectable lady. And, uh, of course, it was just a, a pure luck that I never got a DWI. But, anyway, pride, you know, can be a real killer, too. And... Uh, I had to totally lose my pride before I walked through those doors. Also, I thought uh, because of, of Dr. Bob, who of course was long gone many years before in 1950, and my father who was long gone, I thought that, that made it more difficult for me. Anyway, there were all these reasons why I couldn't possibly go into AA, and I did not until I was totally without hope. And I thought, I don't care if they put it 
I wish they would. Just put it on the front page of the newspaper the next day because I knew people would drive by and see whose car was at the AA meeting. I knew all that stuff, see. (laughs) But first, you see, when I decided that I was an alcoholic beyond backing up, I was only going to get worse. You'd think the first thing I did was think, okay, I'll give up and go to AA. That was not the first thing I did was think, okay, now I'll cover this up. I will keep my house as good as I can. I'll keep myself as looking as good as I can. I had a horror of people thinking I was a drunken slob, you know, or emotionally unstable. That was another no-no. And um, so, okay, I was going to put on this good front face. And, you know, that is one of the heaviest burdens I've ever placed on myself in my life. I had had so many spiritual blessings in my life, especially during that one year I told you about, that it was like privileged information. So, you see, I've got guilt upon guilt with all that stuff. And um, so it, it was a terrible burden. to, And I think that is a total lack of spiritual integrity when you're trying on the outside to deny totally what's going on on the inside. And, and that's, that's a terrible burden. And that was exactly what I did. And I would say this. When you suppress pain and you abandon reality, you will reap anguish. It's just as clear to me as one and one makes two. It's like the law of gravity. It's going to cost you anguish. And that was what happened to me. Um, well, I was at my lowest ebb, and I think this was providential. One afternoon, the phone rang, and a man named John called me and said, Betty, we're going to start a group in the corner for people who have had a problem like you and me. And as I say, I'd been a closet drinker, and I thought, first thing I thought was, wonder how you knew. <laughs> we never tried as clever as we think we are, you know. And uh, so I started crying, and I said, yes, John, I'll come. Well, John is a pharmacist. And went to the first meeting that night, and the first thing I saw when I walked in was this old pamphlet that says, so you think you're different. And I thought, oh, what if everybody else thinks they're different, just like I think I'm different, and we're all just alike because we think we're different. It was just a revelation to me. And I got about 13 of those pamphlets, and I thought, I'm going to have to give these to a lot of people I know. (laughs) I was already going to try to educate the world, I guess. (laughs) Well... Anyway, I went that night, and I woke up at 4.30 the next morning, and I could not sleep. No, you know, insomnia. Well, um, I thought, you have really done some dumb things in your life, but this time you have really ripped your rompers. There is no way in the world you can go 24 hours without a drink because I don't like to tell it, but it's the truth. By this time, I was drinking at least every couple of hours. I was having to drink day and night. This was with the knowledge that it was not going to make me feel a bit better. This was to satisfy the physical craving, knowing it was not going to give me a lift even. And uh, I thought, I I can't possibly go 24 hours. Well, I stuck my neck out, and there I was. So I went the first day. You know, and at times during this, I, I would go into a walk-in closet and close the door and want to beat my head against the wall. What really helped to save my life, besides a lot of praying, I worked in the yard 
physical hard work, just like snakes were chasing me as hard and as fast as I could go. Moved the front yard into the backyard and the backyard into the front yard. Had this wheelbarrow full of sand, and I mean, I was really putting out the physical work. But anyway, I have to tell you this. Uh, there was not a happy Al-Anon waiting for me in the wings. My husband was pretty damn hostile, to tell you the truth. He was not ready for the party to be over. And he would say to me, now, Betty, you don't have to stop drinking. He never once asked me to stop drinking. He just said, just don't drink so much. And I think, now, that sounds reasonable. <laughs> and, and I think, that's what I'm going to do. And golly, you know, I, I always find out where the bottle was in the kitchen at the party. And he'd say, two drinks, and that's all. And I'd find out where the bottle was in the kitchen, and I'd have a few extras before I went and all this stuff, and he couldn't understand why two drinks would make me drunk. And he'd say, you know, I know you buy this real real cheap stuff, but it's smooth. It really is smooth. Well, it pretty darn well should have been because every time I'd take a drink, I'd put the water back in. The level always stayed the same. And, um, you know, after I'd done that a few times, it didn't taste very good to me because there wasn't much in it. Uh, it was just pretty bland. But that was the kind of way it went along. And uh, anyway, one day, I asked him if he'd go to this open meeting with me, and he said, I'll tell you one thing. As far as this program goes, you stand alone. And I thought, oh, my goodness. I've been stabbed. I'll never, never live that over, uh, live over that. That uh, just really struck me. And, of course, it was an embarrassment to my husband that he wasn't ready to quit drinking. Well, I couldn't ask him to quit drinking. I think the only reason that he probably stayed with me when I was drinking is because he was drinking too. If he had been stone cold sober, I don't think he could have stood it because you know how stupid and silly you get when you're drunk. And uh, I, I think that helped him stay with me. Anyway, I hasten to tell you that he came into Al-Anon, oh, two and a half months or something after I came into AA. And he decided I could not ask him. But now he, now I have to tell you, in the all truth, and he will tell you, he was a very enthusiastic drinker. And he kept on, he might have ended up where I was. He was very enthusiastic. But he decided on his own that he would be better off if perhaps he gave up drinking himself. And that also helped save our marriage. Because sometimes when he drank, he had a bad mouth. And and sober, I wouldn't have stood it. Well, it just worked out that, that we just fit in with each other that way. When I first came in, I knew that it was going to be terribly hard, so I wrote notes to those very near and dear to me that I was going to go into AA. See, I thought, that way I can't back out so easy. Well, every time I wrote anybody, I'd say, but please don't tell Lois. I meant Lois Wilson, because she may have known other AAs that she loved and so on, but I knew if she found out that I was an alcoholic, that would be the end of our friendship. Now, that shows you my insecurity that I have always had. Very, very vulnerable. Well, I just came across this the other day, and I'll share this for the second time in 16 years. The letter I got from her in April, and just as 
couple of lines. Dear Betty, what a surprise. I see when I'm saying, don't tell Lois, don't tell Lois, finally one day I said to myself, oh my God, I'm going to have to tell Lois. So I wrote her and told her, and she wrote back the next month, dear Betty, what a surprise to learn of your experience, both tragic and glorious. I'm so glad you're in AA. It is another tie to bring us closer together. And that was just the beginning of it. And see, I expected rejection. I just, I guess it was my insecurity. Well, anyway, it worked out. It worked out for the best. A um, couple of things I wanted to tell you. John that brought me into the program, he could have had, I have 16 years, he could have had about 16 and a half because he'd gone to a treatment center. But I tell you, John was a pharmacist. And it was real harder for him, like if I'd been working in a liquor store, you know. And uh, so John has not that many years of sobriety. And he told me, he helped me, he saved my life. He would come by night after night after night. And uh, we call it his wino wagon. And we'd pick up all these people and we'd go to AA meetings all over the place. And he told me later, he said, Betty, when I was doing that, I was not drinking. But he said, I was taking some stuff I shouldn't have been in AA. And I got to thinking about that. And one time I heard Sister B that uh, we heard referred to this morning. And Sister B said, you know, you can use a crooked, you can use a crooked pencil to draw a straight line. And I thought, isn't that true? God doesn't care who he uses when he wants to make a point. We don't have to be worthy to be used. And isn't that wonderful? Because I still, of course, am fighting character defects and will be all my life. I'll just be trying to progress a little as I go along. But anyway, John saved my life, and he's been a wonderful, wonderful uh, help to AA in that little town. He's very visible because he's right, a handsome young man with a wife and, and three boys and and just in the center of town, you know. People have come to John throughout the years. Well, you know, one thing I think, AA doesn't just teach us how to handle our drinking. It teaches us how to handle our sobriety, which is what we couldn't handle in the first place. And that's one reason we drank. <laughs> that's the way it seems to me. You know, we read in the big book that alcohol is cunning, baffling, powerful. And in my own mind, when I hear that, I add, and patient. It is so patient. It will wait for me as long as I live. It is inside me just as much as the color of my eyes. It's a part of me. And we must never, ever get overconfident. I knew this woman who was uh, in MH and MR work for 27 years. I don't know how many people she sponsored. And one day this doctor said, you know, even though you have such a terrible heart, he said, probably a glass of wine a day wouldn't hurt you. And I don't know if he knew she was in AA or not. You know, some doctors are not aware of what we can take and what we can't. And uh, so that started her. And uh, it wasn't any time until that glass of wine a day was replaced by a bottle of bourbon in the refrigerator. And uh, then it was a very short time until she committed suicide. And she had 27 years. Overconfidence is a real killer. Now, my friend General Custer told me that, and he was right. <laughs> yeah. 
I have heard some people say, if you have a slip, you probably planned it subconsciously. Now, that may be true sometimes, but I can only speak for myself when I tell you what I have to say. I don't feel that way about it for myself. To me, I could be walking down the street and it could hit me just like a rattlesnake standing in front of me, just like that, and I would be gone. I think it could sneak up on me just like that. I think I will always be vulnerable to it. And the closer I stay to the program, the less vulnerable I'm going to be. And I, I need I need what you people have to tell me and to share with me. Bob and I heard a woman say one time, the person I was will drink again. And we thought that was one of the most profound statements we'd ever heard because the person I was will will drink again. If I don't stay close to this program, I'm going to gradually become the person I used to be. And that person is going to be the same old Betty that used to drink, and I will drink again, and I know it. Well, also, I like to share this thought. When we say the Lord's Prayer, we say, give us this day our daily bread. And you know, daily bread is fresh bread. I think we need to keep it fresh every day. My father sent me a poem, and the last few lines of it go like this. And I always think of the co-founders when I think of this poem. It's not what we add to the temple past, but only how well we hold it fast, how grateful we keep it green. And you know, gratitude is a marvelous insurance policy. And it helps to keep our program green, in my opinion. If you ever hear somebody say, well, I tried AA a couple times, and I didn't like it. To me, that's like hearing someone with terminal cancer say, I tried chemo, and I just didn't like it, so I didn't go back. It's just as fatal. Well, I, I think of this sometimes. You know, if Judas had stayed around until the end of his rope, if he hadn't aborted his life, he would have found that God is there waiting for you at the end of your rope. That is where he meets us. That is the way I see it. I believe that God's goodness is bigger than our badness. And I'm so grateful for that. And in closing, I would say to you a thing that has meant a lot to me. Uh, this story of fiction, uh, there was an imaginary conversation between Christ and Zacchaeus. And Christ said, Zacchaeus, what was it that made you desire this peace? And Zacchaeus said, why, Master, I saw mirrored in your eyes the Zacchaeus I was meant to be. And I think when we look to our samples and people who have been in the program a while, we can see perhaps a vision of the person that we might become. And I thank God for sponsors. I, You see, when I was the only woman, well, there was one other woman who had four months when I came in, and uh, it wasn't long before she had a slip and asked me to be her sponsor, and I just barely knew how to spell Alcoholics Anonymous. But <laughs> I said, well, okay. Uh, I thought, well, I can listen, and maybe that will help her. That's all I knew. But I needed so badly some guidance and some help, and I didn't have it. There was not any. 
Now, there were friends of ours who lived 50 miles away, and they came over every Monday night to help us get started in the program. The man was the AA, and he had about 30 years at the time. And he decided he was my sponsor, and his wife decided she was Bob's sponsor. But they weren't people that we got to communicate with that much. And uh, I've always regretted that there there were not that many women who had some seniority in sobriety. And now I have a sponsor, and she lives about 30 miles away. And uh, that's just about the best I can do in that direction anyway. But I do thank God for sponsors. And I don't know how, how I would manage without the help of some sponsorship, and I wish I had had more. And in closing, I want to share this little thought with you. I believe that God has his own big book, and in it, he makes a quote. And to me, it's AA, and he says, A new life I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I think that's what has happened to us. And thank you for listening.